This audio program is a ministry of Clear Note Fellowship. For more information, go to clearnotefellowship.org. All right, this is uh, baptism in church membership, so if that's what you're looking for, you're in the right place. Um, why on earth would we have a session on baptism in church membership, seeing as how it's so popular, so interesting, so exciting? Who cares? Why are you here? Anybody care to answer that question? Actually, there's a serious question. Why are you here? Because you like me. He saw my picture and thought, he's a handsome guy. I want to be in this session. I don't know. I I had to pick something. I don't know exactly why it's so crucial. Hmm. Well, I'm going to start by telling some stories. Um, When I came to college, I came um, to Indiana University here in Bloomington. I'd been a believer for a little more than a year-ish. So I was a new believer. Um, I had not been discipled. Um, in any way really coming into college and so everything was new and fresh and I quickly became involved uh, with two uh, campus ministries Um, the first one was InterVarsity the second was Campus Crusade Um, my freshman year hello Eric I was hoping you'd come My freshman year, I was mostly involved with InterVarsity on campus. Um, at the time, InterVarsity had one staff worker. She was a woman. Um, there were about 30-ish students in InterVarsity. Most of them were women. Uh, all the Bible study leaders were women, including my own Bible study leader. She was a missionary kid from Guatemala. Um, now, being a young Christian and believing the Bible as I did, I... Uh, and trusting other Christians to like believe and submit to the Bible whenever they come across something they see in Scripture. I happened to come across 1 Timothy chapter 2. And so I brought it to the attention of my leaders, my Bible study leader and, and the staff worker. I said, hey, I don't think you should be teaching us, actually. <laughs> and... and uh, there were several meetings that I had with uh, with student leaders who were older in the organization, and then also the staff worker. Um, and um, so I brought up the prohibitions on women teaching and exercising authority to them, to the leadership team. The leadership team at the time was all women; every last one of them were women. Okay. Um, now, how well do you think it went over? <laughs> you think it went over well? They said, oh, goodness. I had no idea. You're right. Well, shoot, I better resign. <clears throat> what kinds of things do you think they said to me? It's outdated. It's outdated. Uh, they, they weren't so bold as that. 
to say it was outdated. They wanted me to stick around, and they understood that I believed the Bible to be true. And so they didn't want to cast off Scripture in such a bold way. We understand your concerns. That's very interesting. Yes. Next topic. (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. The best it got was one one girl. She was a senior. And uh, she not only... uh, taught Bible study, she would teach the large group meeting fairly regularly too. And she would preach. And she was actually a very good preacher. <laughs> Fact. But um, she, she just explained to me, you know, she was pouring out her heart to me the way that um, you know, some, some girls just can do. And uh, she was explaining to me that she would really love for there to be men who led. She'd really love there to be... But there aren't men around who are leading or who are capable of leading. Huh? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so you know what I did, of course. I volunteered. I was... Uh, I saw my chance, you know. This was my opportunity, man. I was going to jet up to the top of the ranks as a freshman in college. This all, this all happened my first semester of college, right? Um, I had the pride and I had the naivete to think I was the man for the job. Now, how well do you think that went over? Now, a normal person would probably just get up and leave at this point, but I'm not a normal person, so I appealed higher in the intervarsity structure. Um, and so there was a regional staff worker who was a man, and I appealed to him. And uh, I, I got his information, and I called him and talked to him, and I made such a stink about it that he inserted himself into the situation. Now, this man was uh, in the midst of a nasty divorce. His wife was leaving him for another man. Um, and his solution... His solution was he came in and he created two new Bible studies, one for all the women and a couple men. A couple a couple people of the masculine persuasion. And then me and a couple other guys that were kind of you know with me in all this. <clears throat> so we were sidelined. We didn't matter anymore. And then what they did was they took these two guys. There were two guys. So one of them, I'm convinced, is, is a homosexual. Um, and the other one was just really weak. And they very quickly promoted them to the leadership team so there would be parity. Anyhow, I ended up leaving InterVarsity. And I went to Campus Crusade. <clears throat> now, where am I at? It's hard when you're like telling a story that you've written down because you get all kinds of lost. Um, <clears throat> right, the result was that I eventually left. I maintained a lot of those relationships, but I left them with the Campus Crusade. Now, in the, in the process, I had developed uh, something of a theology of the church. So I knew by that time that I wasn't just going to be a part of a campus ministry anymore. I was going to be a part of a local church. And I was going to look to that local church to disciple me. I was from a broken home. I felt it. I knew it. I had no idea. And I had a girlfriend. 
or is about to. And I, so I, I, I was very insecure about, dude, what does it mean to be a husband and a father? I had no idea. I'd never seen it in my life. And so I, I was committed to finding a church. I found this little, uh, not little, I found a Baptist church uh, fairly far away from campus, not this church. Um, and I went to the church and I, I plugged myself in on purpose. And I met people and I invited myself to their homes. And there were two families that would take me in and, have, and allow me, permit me to come over for dinner when I insisted upon it. And it, that's a little, maybe a little unfair. There's one family that was just very kind to me and very generous. I still think very highly of them. Um, very sweet couple. Um, and then I started recruiting my friends from Campus Crusade to come with me guess how that went it didn't now listen this was not just some small podunk fundamentalist Baptist church that no college student would want to go to. Okay, In fact, the campus director for Campus Crusade goes to that church, as do or did at that time many Campus Crusade staff workers. But when I went, there was not one Campus Crusade student. Not one. Think about that. The campus director goes there. A good number of the staff go there. Not one student from Campus Crusade went to that church. Not one. Not one. There were, there were a handful, uh, I think about five to eight college students who went to that church. Not one of them from Campus Crusade. Why was that? Aren't they required to go if they're on staff? They're required to go to church if they're on staff. That's right. So that's why they went. That's why they went. <laughs> why weren't there students there? Because the staffers didn't love the church. Because the staffers didn't love the church? They were making their, their college group their church. The students were making their college group their church, but they lead these Bible studies. They have one-on-one meetings. Think about this. Their job, their professed job, is to evangelize and disciple students on campus. Right? And what uh, Pastor Bailey said last night is true. It's, I think it's a higher uh, or a, a smaller ratio of, of staff workers to students. There are 350 students in Campus Crusade. Or there were at the time. Okay? And there were at least 25, 30 plus staff workers and interns. Not a joke. Not a joke. Okay? So about 1 to 10. Okay? And their whole job, their whole purpose in life is to be on campus, to be meeting one on one with students, discipling them every week, and leading their Bible studies. Okay? So think about this. Your job is to disciple students. You have 10 students in your Bible study. You hang out with them all the time. You meet with them every week, sometimes multiple times a week, for D time, for an hour plus every single week. And you never invite them to your church. And you never invite them to your church. 
Can I ask a question? Yeah, go ahead. I just want to be sure we're in the right class because he wanted to be in the one on baptism and stuff. Are we in the right room? Yeah, baptism and membership. Is we're, this it? This is it. Okay, well then go ahead. I'm sorry. I just want to be sure we're right. <laughs> I have a point. I will get there eventually, okay? <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> but what does this have to do with baptism and church membership? I don't get it. I'm going to get there. I hope probably some of you are beginning to make connections anyway. Right. How do you disciple somebody and not connect them to a local church? Not connect them to the... Not try. I asked. Okay? I actually asked, why are the people in your Bible studies, why don't you bring them to church with you? I thought it was a pretty solid church. They at least taught the Bible. It was better than the church that some of the, the majority of the students went to. What's the deal? I asked that question and I got an answer. And the answer was, we don't want them to. We don't want them to. And the first reason given... There are a lot of layers to that, but the first reason was that they wanted a break from college students. I spend all my time with college students during the week. I just want to go someplace with my family where I don't have to think about college students. And they go to this church way outside of town. They don't even talk to their students about going to church with them. They don't care. just want to be away. Clearly, they don't have any vision or any concept of the relationship of, between the local church and what real discipleship actually is. <clears throat> the second part of that question is that the church itself wasn't keen on having too many college students. Okay, that church's bread and butter is middle-class suburbanites. And middle-class suburbanites don't want a bunch of college students around. College students are a drag. They drain the church. They take up time and resources and energy and they're dangerous around your kids because who knows where they've come from and the ways that they've been twisted. It's not safe. And this church is the consummate safe church environment. A handful of studious, doctrinally minded students who are going to come and take notes maybe, that's okay. No more than 10 or 12. And there never were more than 10 or 12. When I got there, there were five or six. I ended up getting a couple, a handful of uh, Campus Crusade uh, friends to go with me. And there were probably about 12 about the time that I left. <clears throat> uh, the third part is that campus ministry was itself too dominating for more than a nominal commitment to any church anyway. Campus ministry depends on students who are more committed to the campus ministry than to any church. And they weren't threatened by the thoughts of their students going to church somewhere else. So here's what I mean. Most of my friends involved with Campus Crusade were putting in an average of 20 plus hours per week into the campus ministry. Between Bible studies they were leading, Bible studies they were attending, large group, prayer meetings... Other activities they were involved with, like planning social events, planning retreats, on average, 20 plus hours a week. They weren't being challenged or called to even go to church, much less give themselves to one. I knew the the student president of Campus Crusade. I lived with him. 
He did not go to church anywhere. He was in the campus director's Bible study. He was in the inner circle. He did not go to church anywhere. He would not. He refused to go to church, period. Not even to attend. Church is just about getting fed. I'm a part of the invisible church. Church is just about getting fed and having fellowship. I get fed in my Bible study and I listen to James McDonald sermons. And I have fellowship in my Bible study. That's all I need. Now, it wouldn't surprise you, it might not surprise you that that man was also sexually immoral at the time while he was leading the large group meeting, teaching a Bible study, and refusing to go to church anywhere. As were a number, a huge, huge, disproportionate number of, of my friends, and eventually myself. Of my friends from Campus Crusade, one of two fates has overtaken almost all of them. Can you tell me what they are? Can you guess? They have all either apostatized, walked away from the faith entirely, and that is the majority of them. The majority of my friends from Campus Crusade have all walked away from the faith. Those who haven't have done what? Can you guess? Gone on staff. Why is that? There are three exceptions to that. Two of those exceptions went with me to church and were connected to and were helped to see the necessity of a local church in their life even while they were in college. And the other one has passed through the fires. We've all passed through the fires in our own way. Why is that? Why is it that it's either on staff or apostasy? Now I know that it's not universally true, but I'm telling you, in my experience, that's what it was. Why was that? No guesses? Because there is no discipline? Because there's no discipline. That's a, a huge part of it. They didn't know what to do after college? They had no idea what to do after college. So some stayed and some left, and those left all apostatized. <laughs> All they knew was Campus Crusade. All they knew was Parachurch. And everything about it that was sold to them was fun, exciting, youthful, dynamic, no discipline, no authority, no accountability. And so they left. They didn't have it anywhere. There's no Campus Crusade for non-college students, for, for adults who are starting families. They never got discipled in college the way they needed to be discipled. And so they were just gone. They had no roots. They had no place to go. No place to plug in. And if they were more spiritual, if they were more committed to Jesus Christ, well, all they knew was Campus Crusade. And so the only solution was well, there's nothing else out there for me but to stay in the organization and move up. 
internship staff. So that was a really long introduction. Okay. Am I just bitter about my experiences in college? Why did I tell those stories in a session on baptism and church membership? I'm convinced that the parachurch failed my friends. We didn't need a parachurch organization. We didn't need a parachurch organization dominating our lives and keeping us in a bubble of 18 to 20 year old college students who are leading each other in Bible studies. The consummate expression of the blind leading the blind. All from broken homes, never seen a church, never seen a family, never seen a healthy home. No idea. Sophomores leading freshmen. Sophomores who became Christians a year ago leading freshmen. Sophomores from broken homes in abusive relationships leading freshmen from broken homes in abusive relationships and whatever else. It was idiotic. Pretending we were growing as disciples while we were all sexually immoral in one way or another. We were all blowing off our classes and we were all setting ourselves up to fail as husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, and helpful church members. How many of the staffers do you suppose um, Kate never had a real church background? I, I, sus- it, I... They're coming from the um, people who joined it. It's just a tree, you know? It starts here, and it just kind of is this self-perpetuating tree. I'm not going to draw the lines. Think of a family tree. I don't think very many of them did ever at all. Many of them left the church and seen the church as a failure, at the very best or worst. The church has failed in its mission to reach out and to evangelize. And this is what you, if you go and talk to, um, if I, when I talk to my friends who are on staff with Campus Crusade and tell them, look, man, you need to be devoting your time and energy to the church and really discipling people and getting them plugged in. They say, well, if the church would do its job, we wouldn't have to do what we're doing. I don't know how many times I've heard that. If the church would just do its job, we wouldn't have to do what we're doing. But what are they doing? We needed the church. We needed the household of faith. We needed mothers and fathers and pastors and elders. Inside the church is a wealth, a treasure house of blessing and grace. And that blessing comes when we're in fellowship with and communion with the whole body of Christ. That blessing comes through things like the sacraments, the privilege of discipline and pastoral care. It's in corporate worship. It's in the preaching and teaching of officers of Christ Church who have been gifted, ordained, and set apart to the task. Not self-appointed, not unaccountable, free spirits who walk about and like to talk about the Bible and feel spiritual about doing so. Access to those blessings comes through being part of the visible church. 
being united to the visible church as it is expressed locally in a particular body. That's what we're here to talk about. We're here to talk about how we gain access to the riches of God's mercy. Now, how many of you think that sounds impious to say? After all, God's blessings come through spiritual union to Christ, and that's by faith. Right? Right. Right. Yes, of course. But what spiritual union can be had with Christ apart from union with His body? None. What spiritual union can be had excuse me, with Christ apart from His bride, the church, through whom His blessings come and to whom the promises have been made? After all, Jesus came to save the church. We're not accustomed to think this way because we're all individualists. We're all Americans. We're all atomistic. We're all autonomous. And all of evangelical culture is geared to orient us to our own personal Jesus. It's our personal personal relationship with Jesus that matters. So if you want to be spiritual, what it means is you and Jesus alone at Starbucks with the earbuds in. And that's all you need. Especially if the earbuds have a, a, a podcast going. Some sermon from somebody out there, right? Who you're not accountable to in, in any way. And who has no actual mandate to care for your soul personally. <clears throat> It's our own personal decision for Jesus that matters. Jesus came to save me. What's the church got to do with it? It's a myth that we've all bought into that the Christian faith is essentially a personal and private matter. And guess what? It is not. It never has been. Sure, our faith is personal. God deals with us personally as individuals. We will, each one of us, give an account. We will stand before Him and give an account of everything that we've done in our bodies. Okay? And it matters whether or not we individually and personally have real living faith in Jesus Christ. But Christian faith is also a corporate matter. When we are adopted by God to be His sons, guess what? We are adopted into His household, into His family. We are not just us and God. By definition, being adopted into God's household means having brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers in the faith. As Christians, few things are more important to understand than our corporate identity as members of Christ's bride and body. It was the church father, Cyprian, who said that we cannot have God as our father if we will not have the church as our mother. John Calvin quoted it in his famous sentence in the Institutes. But what about that idea that we're all part of the invisible church by faith in Christ? So who needs the visible church? You've heard that. You've maybe thought it. You maybe still think it. (coughs) Who needs the visible church? Anyone? The answer is everyone. Why? The Westminster Confession puts it this way. The visible church, which is also Catholic or universal under the gospel, consists of all those throughout the world that profess the true religion and of their children, and is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the house and family of God, Okay, out of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. 
The Westminster Confession continues, Unto this Catholic invisible church, Christ hath given the ministry, the oracles and ordinances of God for the gathering and perfecting of the saints in this life to the end of the world, and does by His own presence and spirit, according to His promise, make them effectual thereunto. Who are the officers of the church given to? Answers in, of the church. Given to equip the body, to build the body up. Who were the sacraments, the ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper given to? The church. Who's called and equipped to preach God's word? Officers of Christ's church. The visible church is the treasure house of God's blessings on earth. It is the principal means by which we grow in grace and are sanctified. And there is no ordinary possibility of salvation outside of it. Which does not mean that there are not exceptions. But ordinarily there is no possibility of salvation outside of the church. It has always been this way. The visible covenant people of God have always been central to God's plan of redemption. And that covenant people has always been a covenant people of faith, bound by visible signs and seals of the covenant of grace. Whether they've been laboring under the types and shadows of the Old Testament or standing in the sunlight of the new. God made a covenant with the household of Abraham that he would be his God and the God of his children. It was a covenant that contains all the promises of the gospel. It was built and conditioned on faith. And Galatians tells us it cannot be annulled. Within that covenant, you could be broken off by unbelief and disobedience to the commands of God. By unbelief. Right? And you could be grafted in by faith. In fact, this is what has happened to the Jewish people. As Romans 11.20 explains, they were broken off because of their unbelief. How were they ever in? By faith. Broken off from what? The covenant people of God. For what reason? Unbelief. So what kept them in? Faith. How do you stand within the covenant? By faith. How do you get grafted in if you're a sojourner in ancient Israel? By faith. How did Gentiles get grafted into the covenant people of God in the New Testament? By faith. This is Romans 9 through 11. It's all of faith. That's why Hebrews 11 and 12 exists. Throughout the Old Testament, we see many who were in fact grafted into the covenant people of God from outside. They weren't physical Jews, but they believed and they received the promises. Rahab. Mentioned in Hebrews 11. An ancestor of our Lord Jesus Christ. What's her name? David's grandma. Ruth. Ruth, thank you. Goodness, sorry. Ruth. Unbeliever. Unbeliever. Grafted in. By faith. It's always been that way. By faith. Always. But it's never been unaccompanied by an external sign. In the Old Testament, 
the sign and seal of your faith, the sign and seal that marked you as part of the covenant people of God and granted you access to the blessings of God was what? Circumcision. Circumcision. Romans 4.11 says, Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The sign was given to the children of the covenant and they were expected to keep God's covenant by faith. And if they didn't, they were to be cut off from God's people. And as it turns out, many were cut off. As Romans 2, 28 and 29 say, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. It has always been this way. God has always been concerned about real and living faith. He has always been concerned about the heart. The promises of the Old Covenant have always been spiritual promises accompanied by other promises. There have always been many people in the outward covenant who do not truly belong to God by faith. This is why we make a distinction between the visible and the invisible church. But the invisible church is always found within the visible covenant people of God. Now this pattern continues under the new covenant, although the sign for entry into the covenant people of God has changed. Jesus taught His disciples saying, go and make disciples of all nations, and then He taught them how to do it. Go, make disciples of all nations. Next word? Baptizing. Baptizing Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Bringing them into the covenant people of God. And then teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. Baptism is the entry point into the new covenant people of God. It is the beginning of Christian discipleship. If you're outside of the covenant people of God and by an act of God's mercy are born again made new, given real, vital, living faith in Jesus Christ, then you are called to join God's covenant people through baptism. No less now than in the times of the Old Testament. This connection is made very clear in Colossians chapter 2, the connection between the two. In Christ you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Right? So circumcision clearly symbolizes something spiritual happening. You were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism. There's an equivalence. Having been buried with Him in baptism in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Both baptism and circumcision are signs and seals of the covenant of grace representing the spiritual realities of all Christ has accomplished for us and hold holds forth to us all the promises of the gospel which can only be received by faith. Never by virtue of the act itself. This concept of membership within the covenant is implicit all over the New Testament. Okay, Jesus established the church to be a public institution that would mark and discipline those who would confess His name. At Pentecost, the book of Acts says that 3,000 people were baptized and added to their number added to the number of the church 
The very fact of church discipline requires some kind of membership. There are those outside and those inside, and those inside need to be put outside. There has to be some mark, some border, some identity. Inside, outside. You know, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 5, when he's talking about this, he said, I didn't mean for you, when I said, you know, don't associate with immoral people, I wasn't talking about outsiders. I was talking about those inside the church. We have to know who's inside the church and who's outside the church if you're going to obey that, right? Who's inside? Those who have been baptized and who are members of the local church. Who's outside? Those who have either not been baptized and not made members or those who have been disciplined and excommunicated, put outside. In that same passage, the Apostle Paul says, quotes actually Leviticus, have nothing to do with the immoral person. Scripture also commands us to submit to our elders who keep watch for our souls all over. It's just implicit. These realities all carry with them the implication that the basic form of covenant membership remains the same between the Old and the New Covenant. And so similarly, does hypocrisy continue within the New Covenant people of God? We have this vain idea that somehow... You know, things are, are, are more pure now, and we have a pure church. Guess what? No. Now, God's blessings are poured forth in greater abundance in the new covenant, okay? And so I think it's right for us to expect a higher degree of purity within the church, but there always, always has been, always will be unbelievers who are part of the visible church. The external, outward covenant people of God. <clears throat> and so you see that in the New Testament. Judas, Ananias and Sapphira, Simon Magus, the immoral man in 1 Corinthians 5 who had to be disciplined and cast out, the man who had his father's wife. Okay. So here's the deal. Nobody cares. Nobody understands baptism and church membership. So nobody, those who don't, and don't give themselves to membership in a local church, haven't confessed their faith by baptism, and haven't given themselves to a local church, have cut themselves off from access to the grace of God which is extended to those within the church through the fellowship of believers. Acts chapter 2. They're baptized. They're added to the number. If by... Well, yes... So those who received his word, this is Acts chapter 2, verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And, okay, entry point, right? And then what happens next is the teaching and the discipleship and the means of grace by which 
those disciples, those newly made disciples, are built up. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, okay, which is more than just the Scripture. It's the teaching and preaching of the officers of Christ's church. Okay? And the fellowship, the corporate life of the body of Christ, the breaking of bread, which is more than just eating together. It's the Lord's Supper. Okay? And I could prove that to you, but I'm not going to. Okay? Um, the breaking of bread and the prayers. The prayers, plural, mean the corporate prayer life of the people of God. Okay? Corporate worship. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings, distributing the proceeds to all as any had need, day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. This is the starting point of Christian discipleship. You want to grow in grace? You want to become more godly? You become a disciple. You're baptized, you're added to a local church, and then you give yourself to the devotions of the, of the church. The teaching of the apostles, the preaching of God's Word, fellowship with other believers, corporate worship, the Lord's Supper. All means by which we grow in grace. And cut off from which there is ordinarily no possibility of salvation. And implicit in the Lord's table is also what? Church discipline. The benefit of church discipline. Can you imagine if me and my friends had the, uh, the benefit and privilege of being disciplined for our sexual immorality in college? It would have been life to us. You know, and what was the fear that they were gonna, we were going to walk away from the ministry? Well, guess what? We didn't walk away from the ministry, but we did walk away from the faith. These are the benefits of church membership. So, what's the application? Don't cut yourself off from the covenant community or the means of God's grace. Understand. The centrality of the covenant community, the local church, and the life of the believer. It is at the heart of what it means to be a disciple, to be oriented around the life of the, of the church. Not, not this, me and Jesus alone with my Bible, having my quiet time every day. Now, it's important for you to read your Bible. It's important for you to pray by yourself. Okay? It's important for you to study the Bible on your own, but you need men who have been set apart to build you up, who know you, who know your sin, and who have been gifted by God to build you up. So Ephesians chapter 4, I think. <clears throat> Thank you.
chapter 4, verse 11, He, Jesus, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. So who did Jesus give to build you up? Officers. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for giving us Your Word and thank You for giving us Your church. Help us to love and to honor you and to honor our mother. Make us faithful sons and daughters of the church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a production of Clear Note Press. Please feel free to share this recording with others, but do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more resources like this, go to clearnotefellowship.org.